moves in closer to Chapter 11 filing, Northern Oil makes acquisition in Marcellus, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello, and welcome to the REARG Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Fisher. Later, legal analyst Sean Daly discusses the latest on Hertz and guarantee claims bifurcation. It's Friday, February 5th. On January 29th and ahead of its anticipated February 24th Chapter 11 filing in the Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas, Belk uploaded copies of its RSA plan and disclosure statement to the Prime Clerk website. Prime Clerk is serving as the company's claims, noticing, and solicitation agent. As part of the plan, the company has indicated it intends to raise $225 million of new money through a new first lien, first out, new money loan with $125 million allocated to existing first and second lien lenders who would be required to submit a commitment letter by February 2nd. Existing equity holders would be diluted and own 50.1% of the equity upon emergence. Existing second lien holders would own up to 40% through equity received on behalf of their claims for participating in the new money investment. According to the plan, pre-petition first lien lenders would receive 55% of their claim in new first liens, first lien second out, or FLSO loans, and the right to participate in their share of the new money financing. Of the $125 million of new money financing reserved for lenders, two-thirds would be open to existing first lien lenders and the other one-third for the existing second lien lenders. Interestingly, recoveries under the plan for first lien lenders, according to the DS, range from 55.1% to 88.1%, and the upper end include, if first lien lenders fund their share of the new money, additional recovery from roll-up loans, new equity, and a commitment premium of an additional 25% of their claim in the second out loans. Second lien lenders would also be able to participate in the new money offering. However, based on the plan, second lien lenders would not be able to roll up their loans or receive an additional payment on existing claims in new first out loans by participating. They would, however, receive on their existing claim new second out loans, share of a new second lien loan, and equity up to 34.9%. Net leverage on the company's estimate for 2022 EBITDA would fall to 9.6 times after the transaction from the 12 times pre-petition. Northern Ireland Gas announced that it has agreed to acquire from Reliance Industries 64,000 net acres and share of certain wells in the core of the Marcellus and Utica plays. Northern said that in 2021, the asset will produce approximately 100 to 110 MFCFE per day and generate approximately 55 to $60 million in unhedged cash flow from operations during 2021, with an estimated cash expenditure budget of 25 to $30 million. In a recorded call discussing the transaction, CEO Nick O'Grady said that the acquisition was based on a company's strong belief that, quote, the outlook for natural gas is strongest in over a decade. Total consideration to be paid to Reliance and net to Northern um, consists of $175 million in cash and approximately 3.25 million warrants with an exercise price of $14 per share. Northern plans to finance the $175 million cash component through a combination of equity and debt financings, according to a presentation outlining the transaction. The company initiated the issuance of 12.5 million shares with an underwriter's over-allotment option of 1.875 million shares. Northern also initiated the offering of $500 million of senior notes, proceeds from which will also be used to repay credit facility borrowings, repurchase or redeem all of its 8.5% secondly notes due 2023, and repay its senior unsecured promissory note. 
Northern also commenced a cash tender offer for any and all of its 8.5% second lien notes due 2023 at par. On Wednesday, Marble Ridge Capital founder Dan Kamensky pleaded guilty to one count of bankruptcy fraud in his criminal case stemming from the Neiman Marcus bankruptcy. The criminal case is proceeding in front of Judge Denise Cote. The complaint against Kamensky asserted four causes of action. Quote, Daniel Kamensky abused his position as a committee member in the Neiman Marcus bankruptcy to corrupt the process for distributing assets and take extra profits for himself and his hedge fund, U.S. Attorney Audrey Strauss said in a press release issued by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Kamensky's guilty plea was, was pursuant to a plea agreement and was discussed with Judge Cote at a virtual hearing on Wednesday. Both the U.S. Attorney's Office and Robert Siegfried, a spokesperson for Kamensky, confirmed that, according to the plea agreement, the applicable, applicable sentencing guideline range is 12 to 18 months. Sentencing will be ultimately determined, however, by Judge Cote, who is scheduled to hold the sentence hearing on May 7th. On the island of Puerto Rico, through a Rule 2004 motion, AMBAC seeks discovery into real property and other assets of the Commonwealth and its agencies, instrumentalities, and public corporations that it says could be worth well over $1.3 billion. The Monoline insurer argues that the huge untapped value in Puerto Rico government assets should be revealed and considered in connection with the Commonwealth's debt restructuring. They seek the relief ahead of a Feb 10th deadline for the Promesa Oversight Board to submit a plan of adjustment or comprehensive term sheet. AMBAC says the discovery sought is critical to evaluating any proposed plan of adjustment, adding creditors cannot support a plan if the evidence shows that there is a huge untapped value that the plan does not consider or address. The motion says Commonwealth entities hold quote, highly valuable assets that, if sold or otherwise monetized, could generate well over $1.3 billion in additional value that could be used to compensate the Commonwealth's creditors. On Thursday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit reserved a decision after hearing arguments in the appeals of the Title III Court's September 9, 2020 opinion, which denied the monoline insurer's stay relief in order to enforce their perpetrated property rights in revenue that they argued had been pledged to secure bonds issued by the Puerto Rico Infrastructure Fund and the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority. The appeal also addressed the court's preliminary rulings on the HTA and Prefaste relief motions. Top red stories this week included Cineworld First Lien agent Barclays sends reservation of rights letter informing company of default tied to non-payment of LIBOR floor. Two, breaking Frontera Generation files for Chapter 11 in Southern District of Texas. And litigation coverage under McKinsey's $573 million opioid settlement, consultancy agrees to public disclosure of docs related to Purdue and Doe Malincrot. Next, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Greetings, everyone. Here's what the week's got in store for you. Monday, the 9th of February, there's a DS hearing in Gulfport just in time for that big natural gas rally. NGLs, too, and there are earnings. Console Energy, Avaya, Transdyne, Plains All-American, and Mattel, the first of many this week. Tuesday, February 10th, earnings from Teva, Diebold, Nixdorf, and Altice. Wednesday, February 11th, there's a rejection motion hearing in Gulfport and an omnibus hearing in Malincrote. And those are the highlights. Back to you, Raksha. And up next, here's Sean to discuss the latest on Hertz. Thanks, Raksha. This week, we'll dive into Hertz's proposed European restructuring and a creative legal move. First, some background. When Hertz filed for Chapter 11 in May, it kept most non-U.S. entities out of bankruptcy or insolvency proceedings in other jurisdictions. Since then, the company has begun to deal with its various international obligations, including for our purposes, 
725 million euros worth of euro notes. 225 million euros of 4.8% senior notes due 2021, and 500 million euros of 5.5% senior notes due 2023, which were issued and guaranteed by entities that are related to the company's European uh, and then certain other international operations. Notably, they also have guarantees from some entities that are Chapter 11 debtors, including the main U.S. opcos. So the European subsidiaries of Hertz have come to a proposed euro restructuring with an ad hoc group of these notes, and there are three pillars. The first, new money to fund international operations in exchange for new notes. Second, an exchange of the existing euro notes for a reduced amount of new notes. Uh, distinct from the old notes, the new notes are not guaranteed by any entities that are Chapter 11 debtors. And then the third pillar, a bifurcation of the claims under the existing notes against the note guarantors that are Chapter 11 debtors from the claims against the Hertz International guarantors in the allowance of these bifurcated U.S. guarantee claims is non-contingent, fully liquidated, unsecured claims against the Chapter 11 debtors in an amount equal to the face amount of the existing euro notes. The proceeds from the sale of these U.S. guarantee claims would partially pay down the existing euro notes, reducing dollar for dollar the amount of new exchange notes. So, in other words, as a result of Pillars 2 and 3, the euro note holders are getting paid Essentially in full, you start with the beginning old notes claim amount, less the guarantee claim sale proceeds, and that's how you derive your new exchange notes amount. And Hertz notes overall is a sort of business rationale that the new cash infusion and the U.S. guarantee claim sale proceeds allow delevering without the company itself having to put up any new cash to fund international operations. And to effectuate the various aspects of the restructuring, certain subsidiaries have filed for a UK scheme of arrangement and a US Chapter 15 to recognize the scheme as a foreign main proceeding. And then because you have the involvement of certain US Chapter 11 debtors, uh, there's also a motion in the Chapter 11 cases. So on the bifurcation, you've got approximately 790 million U.S. dollars of claims, uh, call it $800 million to keep any math easy, and the bifurcation is a conditioned precedent to the restructuring. If the U.S. debtors don't get approval for it in the Chapter 11 cases, the rest of the restructuring cannot go through unless that condition is waived. The motion in the Chapter 11 cases seeks approval to evidence the severed U.S. guarantee claims with uh, a QSIP or a similar identifier to retain MOLUS to act as an intermediary in the auction process and possibly backstop with some backstop fees. The motion in Chapter 11 cases says there are, quote, several interested parties. Prior UK scheme materials said that certain members of the Euronotes ad hoc group supporting the restructuring, quote, may underwrite the sale. So what's the issue here? 
Zooming all the way out, if the Hertz Chapter 11 debtors eventually pay out more on the bifurcated guarantee claims in a future Chapter 11 plan of reorganization than the sale proceeds from those claims realized at the earlier auction, then the Chapter 11 recovery plus amount of new euro exchange notes issued by Hertz non-debtors are cumulatively greater than 100% of the old euro notes. You may think, doesn't that violate the corollary to the absolute priority rule or the Ivanhoe decision on single satisfaction that you can't recover more than 100% on a claim? This is where it gets fun. Short answer, it looks more likely than not that Hertz will be able to pull this one off. There's a compelling or a more compelling objection that hasn't been made yet on the docket. If no one pipes up, the motion will be approved as is. But even if the stronger objection is made, the debtors have teed this up well in a way for the court to approve it all anyway. So breaking out the situation, putting aside the specific parties for a moment, there are three relevant points in time, two distinct claims, and two claim-through-recovery relationships over time. So time what I'll call T0, euro note holders holding the old euro notes. Call it yesterday. Could be any day in the past. T1, U.S. guarantee claims auction slash euro transaction closing. Let's say those two things happen in, I don't know, late February or March. And then finally, T2, the effective date of a Chapter 11 plan when distributions are made. Call it October. And there are two types of claims that you need to think about separately, the euro notes and then these bifurcated U.S. guarantee claims. So tying it all together, sort of two distinct claim through recovery processes. For the euro notes, at T0, the euro notes note holders are holding approximately $800 million of old euro notes. At T1, they receive $800 million. Cash from the guarantee claims auction and some amount and new exchange notes to add up to $800 million. This is essentially being paid in full, no more, no less by design. No harm, no foul. Then separately, the guarantee claims. So at T1, the auction time, someone will pay some purchase price for the ability to assert the $800 million face of U.S. guarantee claims. Then later at T2, that claim holder will receive some amount, which could be lower, the same, or higher than their original purchase price. If the answer is higher than, this is the rub. The debtors acknowledge in the motion in the Chapter 11 cases that, quote, the company as an enterprise could ultimately pay an amount in excess of the aggregate outstanding amounts under the existing euro notes or potentially dilute recoveries to other holders of general unsecured claims against the U.S. debtors. So far, the U.S. trustee is the only formally objecting party. The U.S. trustee, going back to this Ivanhoe decision from, I believe, the 1930s, says that the Third Circuit has made it clear that that case stands for the proposition that, quote, a creditor cannot collect more in total than the amount it is owed. All right, fair enough. The trustee then goes on, a little bit disjointedly, to say, the existing year note holders will recover more than what they are owed at the expense of creditors in the Chapter 11 cases. Trustee goes on to list out the two forms of consideration they'll receive under the euro restructuring. Um, but that's it. That's really all the analysis. 
So going, going back to the main point, a creditor cannot collect more in total than the amount it is owed. So who is the creditor collecting more than the amount it is owed? The only way you get a creditor collecting more than it is owed is if two conditions are present. First, an existing euro note holder is also a guarantee claims buyer. And second, at T2, it recovers more under the Chapter 11 plan than it paid for the guarantee claim. The UST doesn't really lay out these two conditions and does not address the temporal difference between T1 and T2. There's nothing per se wrong about allowing the full amount of the guarantee claims. The law's focus on this point is on the amount of the eventual recovery by a creditor. The UST says euro note holders will recover more than they're owed, but again, that's just one of several possibilities and not a certainty. Also, that's a T2, but the UST in its filing goes on to describe the payments to be received at T1, which, again, are designed to equal payment in full, no more, no less. The stronger objection, or at least the way to kind of cut through all this stuff and get it out in a way that the, the court might more clearly understand, is to just articulate the circumstances under which a recovery greater than in full could happen. The, the two conditions I mentioned just a minute ago. And then other than outright objection to the motion generally, because the only way you get to those two conditions is at some point in the future, you could ask the court to condition the relief granted on adding some sort of provision that would uh, prevent recovery more than in full if, if those two conditions, if the future condition plays out. Um, or more realistically, I guess you could at least ask for a reservation of rights to argue that uh, later if uh, if someone receives more than, than in full, that you can try to prevent that, and no one can rely on, on this order to say, oh, it's a, it's a foreclosed issue. So how did the debtors overcome the UST's objection and then this modified objection that I just put forth? The motion rationalizes the allowance of the U.S. guarantee claims in the full amount of outstanding euro notes, by pointing to the several nature of the guarantee obligations and asserts that the guarantee claims are not contingent or unliquidated. Fair enough. Also, perhaps more convincingly, is an equitable argument. The debtors note that in the absence of a deal, and given this several nature of the guarantees, the debtor guarantors would remain liable for the guarantee claims in their full amount, but would not receive any of the tangible benefits from the European settlement in restructuring. Otherwise, if you if you didn't approve it, so pretty pretty compelling there. Hey, we're on the hook either way. We got some benefit here from other parties. The company acknowledges two risks of bifurcation. They play up the difference between T one, which you know is, is approximately the time they're seeking approval of the motion, and you know the future T two Chapter Eleven plan distributions, and they they just wave off the, the future is, man, that's, that's just, we need to discount it. It's uncertain. Don't, don't think too hard about it. Uh, the company says the probability of the outcome where it would ultimately, on a consolidated basis, pay out an amount in excess of the, the aggregate outstanding old euro notes, um, quote, cannot be determined at this time. True. Uh, and they also point out, and, and again, this isn't sort of laid out in an incredibly clear way, but they do also note that, uh, you know, 
in a situation where ultimate recoveries to unsecured creditors under Chapter 11 plan are less than the sale price of the guarantee claims, then technically, you know, the debtor stakeholders benefit. On the second point about potentially diluting recoveries to other holders of general unsecured claims against the debtors, uh, again, they, the debtors sort of play up, you know, oh, the deal we have is certain. Uh, yeah, the benefits of the European restructuring, quote, are known and real, whereas the potential for dilution of unsecured creditors is speculative at best. Just don't worry about it. It's for another day. The debtors note that overall, the benefits of the European settlement and restructuring, uh, such as the use of proceeds from the, the guarantee claims to partially pay down the old euro notes, the new liquidity included as part of the restructuring, and overall, the preservation of the international operations is going concern, um, all accrue to the debtors through an increase, at least in the value of their equity ownership in the international operations. They, the debtors say that uh, you know these benefits far outweigh the, the risks. The debtors also tee up the request with the, the classic device of saying there, there are no other good alternatives, and boy, we're really risking liquidation here if you don't approve our, our proposed path. Um, and so finally, just the way the debtors have teed this up, they're seeking approval of the restructuring or performance by the U.S. debtors under Rule 9019 is a, is a settlement, and they, you know, ask the court to use its Section 105A equitable power. This is, this is just a, a really broad brush for approval uh, and is something that, you know, looking at it overall and in, in the way the debtors, debtors articulate the benefits to their business, uh, I think that even if you sort of made an objection here, there's a, there's a good chance that it just gets approved anyway. Uh, one other note that's it's kind of interesting I think there, you have three ways to look at the guarantee claims purchase and the auction price may be informative of buyer's motivations. You First, you could just kind of assume the current unsecured notes trading price at around 60 is the ultimate Chapter 11 plan recovery for those claims. Then you could work backwards to derive your max purchase price based on a required rate of return, sort of classic claims trading, uh, which would imply purchase price less than the current trading price. You could pay uh, the current unsecured notes trading price on the assumption that you know price or eventual plan recovery will be higher, or you know if if the ultimate auction price looks a little untethered from unsecured notes trading prices for for whatever reason. Um, I mean, this kind of relates back to the it's just a, a variation on the second one. People could be looking at this as just purchasing these claims for use as a you know a ticket to some potential future rights offering participation. Uh, market prices sort of imply that unsecureds are the fulcrum, and who who knows how things change between here and whenever the eventual auction is. Uh, unsecured note prices are already up, I don't know, maybe 7 to 10 points uh, since the, the motion was originally filed. Final note on timing, as it stands, the UK scheme it's already passed the convening stage in December, obtained the requisite votes at a scheme meeting on January 15th, and has a February 18th scheme sanction hearing set to obtain the English court's final blessing. 
the chapter 15 recognition hearing and in the chapter 11 cases, this um, motion seeking approval to do the, the bifurcation, they're both set for February 24th. And with that, I'm off to chase a few more powder days in Utah and Colorado. Back to the team in New York. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com media page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. See you next Friday.